media consumers, I'm Brian Curtis. And I'm David Shoemaker. We're the hosts of The Ringer's Press Box Podcast. Twice a week, we have a free-flowing conversation where two old, old friends talk about media and sports and a little politics. Plus interviews with guests like John Krakauer and Jamel Hill. Funny stuff like the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Join us every Monday and Friday on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I think that's right. Good to have you back, Fury. Is that sincere, or you just covering your bases? You gonna tell me why you abandoned Earth? Uh, build an out saber. Traditionally, we tell the truth during our chess games. Maybe that has changed too, though. Uh, okay, let's just say I had a crisis of faith. So why'd you come back? It followed me up there, and. I owe it to Talos. You sure you're not talking about someone else? Greetings and welcome into the Ringerverse here on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin and it is my absolute pleasure to invite you not only back from Sabre, but also to join us here on the Ringer's Nexus podcast feed for all things fandom. Joining me today, now that she's finished telling me it's bottom shelf piss for me or nothing at all, it's my house of our working title. title. Co-host Joanna Robinson. Molly, quick question for you. We all know that like, the tell for Nick Fury, whether or not it's a scroll or actually Nick Fury, is the way in which he cuts his sandwich bread, right? How he eats his sandwich. Okay? What's your tell? How do I know it's you? How will I always know it's you and not an imposter? Well, if I, if I, if I tell you, then the imposter will know. Mm. That's the problem, right? I say it out loud now on a podcast. I say to you, ask me some obscure fact about... Brooks Robinson's gold glove third base defense yeah, in the heyday of the Baltimore I, Orioles. And then why, the scrolls know that. But why would I know what the answer is? Do you know what I mean? Like, I that's I can't use that test on you. <laughs> I think for you, it's if Just I'm podcasting with you. hit up and get some baseball reference links, you know? If I'm podcasting with you yeah. and you don't have to take a bathroom break, I'm going to say <laughs> that's a scroll. And if you you're think podcasting, the, scroll, the scrolls are like Misty from Yellow Jackets, just boasting about their yeah. their bladder size, the capacity. Yeah. And then if you're podcasting with me, and I drink flat water instead of bubbly water, you know that's a goddamn scroll. So you know, if I'm podcasting with you and you're drinking a caffeinated beverage after the midday point, yeah, I know something's up. This is a podcast about secret invasion. <laughs> <laughs> We have a lot to talk about, Joe, with the Secret Invasion premiere, but before we do that, before we break the news that we don't want any of uh, Carlos's shitty little paintings, Arjuna's shitty little paintings, anyone's shitty little paintings, the shitty little painting knock. So cruel. Some quick programming reminders. The feed is buzzing. A lot is coming. Here's a quick snapshot of the week to come. This weekend, Jessica Clemens will have a video breakdown of the Secret Invasion premiere for you. Parsing Hell the yeah. implications of a key character reveal in this episode, which I will not specify because we have not issued our spoiler warning yet. 
You'll be able to figure it out pretty soon. You can listen to that in audio on any pod platform, but you can watch it. You can watch the video right here on Spotify. So check that out. And also, of course, watch the video on YouTube. On Monday, Jessica will be back along with Ben Lindbergh for another video game pod. They will be talking Final Fantasy. Then on Wednesday, the Midnight Boys will share their instant reactions to the second episode of Secret Invasion. Their instant reaction on the premiere is, of course, already up waiting for you on the feed if you have not yet enjoyed it. And then next week, at the end of the week, it's a little bit different than it usually is. Because barring something unforeseen, I mean, could it change? Maybe. At the moment, here's the plan. (laughs) Joanna and I will be with you on Thursday instead of Friday with our House of Our Secret Invasion episode two deep dive because we will be back on Friday with Van for a House of Midnight team up on Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I've yawned of it live. <laughs> this is a movie we loved that we all loved and are so excited to talk about together. So please plan on joining us for that. Joanna, that's a lot. Well, also, we have a special guest on that episode. We do. We do so, indeed. We do. What a it's time a to be alive. Robust week in the Ringerverse. How can people follow all of that? Oh, it's a great question. But also, should we say what's coming, barring any unforeseen unforeseeables? Yeah. Do you Even want, do you want do you this is bold to tease like six pods out, but really only a week <sighs> out. So yeah. Oh god. Do it. Even even after Friday, um, there is a you know, there's a big holiday coming up. Where are we taking it off? No, because we will be here at the top of the following week, allegedly. So my sources tell me. Mallory and I will be covering the last David Tennant season and the specials of Doctor Who. So we're wrapping up the David Tennant era with our third Doctor Who sort of rewatch deep dive episode. So this is the Donna Noble 10th Doctor run plus three uh, specials that come after it. Um, plus the Kylie Minogue Christmas special, which we haven't talked about yet. So there's a lot. There's, you know, Padam, there's a lot going on. So uh, are you excited, Doctor Who? More more 10? I can't wait. I'm so excited. I've had such a blast at the beginning of my Who journey. I, it's been so, so, so joy- joyous to talk about Who with you for the, the first two pods so far. And I know that this is a particular my favorite cherished favorite season not only of who but of tv for you so not only am i so looking forward to watching the episodes and learning what is so meaningful to you about it i can't wait to talk to you about it and hear why this has such an impact on your life i can't wait so to make sure that you don't miss a thing you're gonna want to subscribe to all of our socials right why don't you do that Why don't you follow us on Twitter at Ringerverse? Why don't you follow us on Instagram at Ringerverse? Why don't you follow us on TikTok at Ringerverse? Why don't you make sure you watch Jess's video on YouTube? Why don't you do all of those things? Why don't you subscribe to the podcast? That way you can be like, whoa, there's another thing today. Oh, no, there's another thing today. Oh, they're they're very busy over there. You know, just subscribe and it'll be right there on your podcatcher of choice. Um, And then also, of course, you can email us hobbits and dragons at gmail.com. We were sort of wondering, you know, leading up to this big secret invasion event for over a year, for a long time, we've been doing this secret scroll watch segment on the podcast. And we were sort of idly wondering like, oh, I wonder if we should 
go back through and and then we we're like, no, that's too much work to figure out all the all the secret scrolls that we picked out of the various properties. One of our listeners, Lauren, emailed us hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com with a comprehensive recap of all of Mallory's picks going back to Eternals. Shocking that's how stuff. long we've been doing this. <laughs> And then all of my picks going back to Eternals. So, like, it is a huge list of a Including lot of many my- discussions about shows and movies that have, to be clear, absolutely nothing to do with Marvel. <laughs> Zero. Sandman, you know? We love uh, to commit to a bit here. At House, House of the Dragon, Book of Boba Fett, it's all in there. So thank you, Lauren, for your exhaustive, incredible uh, work. We may or may not be referring to that list later. We're all definitely going to be talking about Scrolls, back to you, Mallory Rubin. The last note at the top, Joe, is is uh, that old friendly neighborhood spoiler warning. Because today's podcast will indeed, in fact, feature plot points from Resurrection, the first episode of Secret Invasion, as well as plot points, discussion points from the entire MCU run to date, and anything from the history of Marvel Comics is fair game. So if you're not ready to tell the truth during this particular game of chess, please proceed with caution. All right, Joe, Resurrection. This premiere was 55 minutes. As a quick reminder for everybody, this is the first Disney Plus show of phase five. Mm -hmm. It is the ninth MCU show of the Disney Plus era. The first MCU television show on Disney Plus since last fall. Since She-Hulk, it's kind of shocking to think about how long it's been since we've gotten one of these installments. This episode, this premiere is directed by Ali Salim, written by Kyle Bradstreet and Brian Tucker. As always, before we dive into the beat-by-beat chronological episode breakdown, we're going to start with our opening snapshot. Some quick thoughts on episode one. I'm going to do an old, like, just like an absolutely brazen smuggle here. And amidst my quick thoughts on episode one, I'm just going to jam some mini comic history right here for you, right here at the top. For those of you who don't know, Secret Invasion is a rather like famous, massive crossover storyline event from Brian Michael Bendis. Ever heard of him? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Lena of uh, Lena Francis U, uh, that ran from April through December 2008. And this just touched all your favorite heroes, all your favorite events, blah, blah, blah. It was this massive, massive story about a scroll invasion. Your most beloved heroes might have been scrolls for a good long while in the comics. Those heroes could be it was Electra, Spider-Woman, Hank Pym, Captain Marvel, Mockingbird. Like that that's what we're talking about. I'm by the way, spoilers for the Secret Invasion comic book storyline, I suppose I should have said. Yeah, uh we had issued a blanket Marvel great. Comics spoiler warning. It's fair game. Run wild. Politicians that you might write, Barack yes. Obama, John yeah. McCain, John McCain, like yeah. real world politicians actually scrolls. So that might come back when we go visit the White House later in this episode. Um, some major differences, obviously. Like there's a few, like there's a few key characters, like Tony Stark, uh, who is obviously not in this show, but was a key player in the Secret Invasion event, he's et cetera, a et cetera. In a way. <laughs> Well, he's always in our... Yeah. His memory looms large heart. over this premiere, certainly. Uh, 
Yeah. And then, um, yeah, and Reed Richards, who we haven't met yet, and we don't, it, we're not repeating WandaVision. Like, we don't anticipate that Reed Richards is just going to show up in an episode of Secret Invasion. So, we're dealing with a different, uh, different set of characters and also a different characterization of the scrolls. This is something that goes back to the Captain Marvel film, whereas the scrolls in this storyline are just an invasive species looking to conquer Earth. In Captain Marvel, that film like sort of played on audience expectations that the scrolls would be villainous and made them instead rather sympathetic refugees. Um, and and you know, it revealed Carol was being manipulated by the Kree, blah, blah, all that sort of stuff. So here then we have a much more complicated, which we love that. We love a we love a villain with a point, right? So we have a much more murkier range of, of moral motivations here for this particular um invasion. And then just one one quick story point from the Secret Invasion comic books that I that I want to bring up here that um, may or may not play out on the show. Stop me if you've heard uh, this before, Mallory. Uh, super Soldier Serum, <laughs> not technically a Super Soldier Serum, but a Super Soldier Serum like substance. So basically, the scrolls are are shape shifting to look like some of your Earth's mightiest heroes, but they don't necessarily have the power set of those superheroes and what they did. There are a few part the super scroll, essentially super soldier program to give them superhuman powers or powers of various aliens, uh, bionic implants, power transmission facilities and satellites were ways that they did it. But eventually it was given to them on a genetic level. And so they no longer needed external power boost. So is that going to be a storyline here are we going to um, see our scroll cell group? Because there are some little moments, little Easter eggs, little like in the background things of things, you know, heists that are happening. So is this is this their larger goal? Yeah. I mean, I we, we should say, in case anyone is wondering, we have not seen anything beyond this no, first episode. Joe we and I have not. only seen the first episode and Absolutely. the trailers. Just operating on the same, no same pl- playing field there. We know nothing beyond what we have seen here Absolutely. in the trailers. The things, I think like there's been a little bit of a discussion point after the premiere of, oh, is the adaptive plan and the mapping going to maybe hew less closely to the comics arc than some people had anticipated? Because just as you noted, so many of the characters are different. But I think that, you know, broadly the idea of the depth and scope of the infiltration, both in terms of the seats and halls of power, right, political figures, et cetera, um, and potentially the the span of time, like how far back some of these Mm -hmm. infiltrations date seems likely to to, to still be, uh, you know, if not a one-to-one, at least something that is really ported over. Uh, And I think this is the other, yeah, I think this is the other, like, most likely thing that will be be pulling from the arc. the heist call out is a great one. I mean, the number of things on that press God, <laughs> not Prescott, 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 the conspiracy uh, board, the conspiracy board, <laughs> the, conspiracy yeah. board there were the, the posted about the heist, et cetera. A lot of different nuggets there. And if we go back to thinking about some of the shots that we've seen in the trailers, because there were a couple different trailers for the season, we've got images of 
briefcases. We've got the vials of substances. I mean, this seems like a very, very likely and element of the show to come. And I think it would it would have to be in some ways, both because if the intent is to infiltrate to the extent that would lead to a global takeover, first of all, practically, you've got to be able to pass. You've got to be able to pass as anyone you are pretending to be. And how can you do that if you can't replicate the power set? But also just the gain, the advantage of being able to inherit and absorb those powers is a more powerful weapon than any of the things they're trying to buy from a a painter. No matter how many people that they like emulate or absorb or, you know, replicate blah, blah, blah. If the other side has the Avengers on it, Ultimately, right. you're on the back foot, right? So, yeah. like, make, you know, be build your own uh, and the, the 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 chessboard centrally featured in this episode. It's a a, a very clear and deliberate metaphor, both for the relationship between Hill and Fury, but in general, that idea of going move to move, piece to piece with your opponent, like you're saying, you've got to be able to match and anticipate what's to come. So this seems inevitable, I think. So on the larger, on the, on the original prompt, which is what are, what are your initial thoughts on the episode, Joanna? Um, I will just say that like, so it's a six episode season, right? Um, this is not my favorite episode of television I've ever watched. Um, it's, it's a, it's a pretty slow start. I'm trying to keep hope alive in my heart that this is because there's a lot of potential here, both with that comic book storyline that we outline, an incredible cast uh, that we absolutely adore, and um, and this espionage flavor that I think is very interesting. Uh, director, series director Ali Slim uh, said in an interview of this one episode of six, he said, this is one big story. And I hope you enjoy it as one big story. It's not episodic. You're not going to feel satisfied at the end of any episode. You're going to feel like, I got to keep going to know what happens next. If you want to have the impact of the story, you got to stick with it till the end. Um, Of course, obviously, it's what I would say. (laughs) I made six episodes of television, and it is a little bit of an odd thing to say about something that is not being offered in a binge drop. But um, thinking about Andor, which, which we heard that they sort of internally we're comparing this to Andor or we're hoping that it would reach the heights of Andor, et cetera, et cetera. And we can see some of the similar DNA. Here's my note for Hollywood. You ready? Don't compare yourself Stop to Stop saying this is the best superhero movie ever made. Stop saying this is this is our Andor. <laughs> Stop inviting and invoking these comparisons oh. that you're you're not going to be able to Wow. Subtweeting Tom subtweeting Tom Cruise on a Friday morning. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> um uh, I would never Andor, we should say, dropped three episodes at once. And if I had just watched that very first episode by itself, I would have felt a little like, this is a little slow. I'm not sure how I feel about it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so of course, I that remember, was 12 total, right? So 12, a very 12, exactly. Length different overall. scope. Yeah. Absolutely. 12 total. They dropped three at once, I think, for that reason, because they knew that you had to like get through the first three hours in order to like really feel like you were in. And I had to convince a lot of people who started Andor and watched one episode and they were like, eh. And I'm like, no, guess what? It's the best. So you have to keep going. And so I don't know that that will be the case of Secret Invasion. We have only seen one episode. We did not receive any screeners. They only sent press out max two screeners of six. So it's not like anyone in the press knows, oh, by episode four, it gets really good or anything like that. Like, that's not anything we know. And I would think that if that were the case, anyway, uh, I'm doing like 
complicated calculation. All this to say is me trying to like feed the little fire of hope in my heart that this will turn into a show that I absolutely adore as of right now. Slow, a little clunky start. Mallory, how do you feel? I feel similarly. I I, I thought this was totally fine. <laughs> like a totally fine episode of television, which is not the most artful analysis and insight, but is sincerely how I felt about it. Like I didn't think it was bad, but coming off the trailers, the adoration and expectations that people have based on how beloved the comic arc is, the cast, that presentation of the spy thriller genre, it seemed like this had a chance to be really special. And I think that like, it just felt flat. It just felt flat. It wasn't bad. Again, I just think it felt flat. Like it didn't have the kind of propulsive energy that I was looking for. Some of the scenes did. When I could watch already Nick Fury and Sonya trade barbs about their their booze orders happily for six episodes, and I mm-hmm. would be not only content but delighted. I thought this was an incredibly, even by the standards of MCU shows needing to remind people of the things they've forgotten or quickly fill them in on, on what has happened in the interim, an incredibly clunky exposition-laden premiere that really exacerbated that thing we're already feeling, which is like, oh man, you want a little more oomph to push you forward. So did I leave it thinking, oh, this show's not going to be good? No, not really. I'm still looking forward to episode two. I think maybe now that they've cleared some of those expo- early exposition hurdles, it, it, I'm hoping that it really picks up from here. Um, but I agree with you. It's like maybe if that were the case, start with more than than one to hook people. Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, it's an interesting one. I think the other thing in the back of my mind and I don't really think this is even a fair thing <laughs> to, to, to raise. But typically, our experience with MCU shows is that we're really hyped and into them at the start, and then they fall off a cliff. So if this is where we're starting, that makes me a little nervous. Because usually rapping strongly is the, is the, the feat they don't quite manage to achieve. Now, maybe this will be the inverse. Maybe it will be a, a slow start and a crescendo to something really special at the end. That would be great. I'm happy to be patient. But if we have yeah. that same sort of late stage final act, like womp, womp, then we just might not be getting the show that we were looking forward to getting. And that would be a shame. But open mind, open heart. Would love to love this, as always. <laughs> I'm curious if, like, it, relatedly, yeah, anything has changed just one hour in, maybe about what you are hoping for out of the series. Whether it's something about the focus of the plot, the blend of characters, the genre flair, the spycraft, anything at all. Has anything shifted for you one installment in? I, I was thinking about the order of release because, as we know, the Marvels, which, um, you know, the Marvels is, of course, so closely connected to, like, Sword and Saber and Fury, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was originally supposed to drop July 28th. So, like, which would be right after, the, though they had not announced the release date for a secret invasion when they moved that date. But like, imagine the Marvels is dropping right after the finale of this. Like how closely related are these two things? Samuel Jackson said to Empire, this series, this series, secret invasion has to happen so that the Marvels can happen. All these things are connected in an interesting sort of way. And again, we're always thinking about the MCU's interconnectedness and how much is appealing and how much feels like too much. Um, And, uh, so it's just something that's on my mind of like, 
How How is this setting up the Marvels? How much space does it need to take to set up the Marvels? Or is that just baked into the premise of the show? And given what we've heard about the way in which the Marvels is being somewhat reworked because of its later release date, this this is a you know this is a question mark we've been having in the MCU ever since like Multiverse of Madness and No Way Home were sort of flip flopping around and like how is that going to impact the story given shifting order of events and stuff like that. The other thing is the is the spycraft angle because you know you and I are espionage fans. We love, for example, Slow Horses is one of our favorite shows in recent memory over on Apple TV. If you haven't watched that, go check it out. Um, But Salim, uh, in in many different interviews, Salim had a list ready of like five films that he was looking at to inspire this, right? So The Third Man, uh, iconic noir film starring Orson Welles, the conversation and the French connection uh, to Gene Hackman, 70s uh, paranoia thrillers, Parallax View, uh, Warren Beatty, 70s paranoia thriller, and The Searchers, which is a John Wayne um, Western. And the um, the paranoia thriller angle is interesting because you and I love Winter Soldier, which is also obviously drawing from the paranoia thriller realm. But the 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 John Le Carre uh, influence here, um, you know, great novel uh, author of spy novels. That's more like Cold War espionage than it is seventies paranoia. So I'm I'm because we start in Moscow, it feels more Le Carre to me than it does like seventies paranoia. But that idea of I mean, the plot of Winter Soldier is Hydra has and for a long time infiltrated shields. And the people that you think are S.H.I.E.L.D. are actually HYDRA. And that is the same, essentially, plot line potentially available here, which is that scrolls have, you know, since the 90s, been uh, infesting and invading various properties. So, like, on the one hand, what could be better than more Winter Soldier in our life? Um, but on the other hand, I'm hopeful that the writing in the show is elevated enough to match the potential of what a spycraft, what an espionage story can give us. So Samuel Jackson talking about uh, this character that he's played for so long, who are now seeing scars readily apparent on the face. Goodbye eye patch. Yeah. Little, little bit of like a paunch going on, bad knee. Um, helping Samuel Jackson with his favorite note that he likes to give to people, which is like, I don't like to run in movies, so don't make me run. They're like, great, you got a bad knee. Here we go. Um, <laughs> so he said to Empire Magazine, here you have a guy who's showing his face and showing his age. It's an opportunity to humanize someone that everyone thinks is superhuman. I had to figure out some stuff and work out some new things, which I've been trying to do for a while. It's great to have an opportunity to find out who he was and delve into how much of a toll his job actually takes on his personal life. So the opportunity... To get to know Nick Fury on this level is really interesting to me. And again, to go back to that sort of like Lecare um, approach to spycraft, I think it's really interesting to distinguish that kind of espionage story from like a James Bond. Like Lecare hated Ian Fleming and James Bond. Um, and I, I think so. Let me hit you with a couple Lecare quotes about spies and who they are and why I think this could be an interesting place to slot an examination of Nick Fury, right? So in in his most famous uh, book, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, 
one of his characters, Alex Lemick, says, uh, what do you think spies are? Priests, saints, and martyrs? They're a squalid procession of vain fools, traitors to, yes, pansies, sadists, and drunkards, people who play cowboys and Indians to brighten their rotten lives. Like, that's just, in you know, incredible stuff in contrast to what's going on with James Bond, who Lecare, I believe, called, like, an international gangster. He was like, he's not a spy. He's like, that's not what a spy is. And I think I think right. it's so interesting. Or talking about, Lecare talking about his, another very famous fictional spy that he wrote, George Smiley, he said, the reason why many people take up the secret life, because Lecare was a spy before he was a novelist, he says, the reason why many people take up the secret life, for some people it's a refuge, for some people it's the comradeship, the sense you are working in a good cause, in a secret place, unacknowledged, which in itself is a kind of safety. Um, and I just, I just love that idea of these, like, you know, when you think about characters like Jackson Lamb and Slow Horses, which would we call him a good guy? Not any day of the week. No. But is he working on the side that we consider good? Yeah. And that's the nice, like, sticky, like, stickiness of a story like this. And so Nick Fury is such an interesting potential character because throughout the MCU, there have just been moments with S.H.I.E.L.D. or with what Nick Fury is asking of the Avengers um where we're like is this a is this a good guy is this the guy to follow is you know like what's going on here and i think it's like just a ripe opportunity and for when you when it comes to something like the third man a great film adapted from a great graham green novel uh lecare there's a great quote about from lecare about graham green and he says what i love in green in every book he writes is the sense of moral search Still within the content of story, there are solitaries in search of some kind of fulfillment. There are paradoxes, of course, which we know they in some way approach God through sin. It is the moral search of a lonely man that in green, as in Conrad, attracts me irresistibly. And so I think this idea of the lone gunslinger, which is why the director of the series keeps referencing the searchers, John Wayne, the searchers, this idea of Nick Fury losing his closest companion in this episode, which we'll talk about and maybe slowly or quickly, because we only have six episodes losing even any other connection than he has. And it's just Nick Fury and his slippery sense of morality. Again, like this is, this is the, Best yeah. version of this story yes, that absolutely. I would love to see. You know what I mean? And I I don't know that Marvel or these particular writers have it in them to tell me this story, but I know that this is possible. And it's what I I don't I don't mean to set the bar too high, but like it's it would please me to no end to see something like this of like really examining the moral slipperiness of a character like Nick Fury, who, um, as one of our listeners emailed uh, and we'll talk about later, like dipped trading cards in blood in order to manipulate his heroes (laughs) into fighting in the Battle of New York. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and someone reckoning, like escape to space to avoid dealing with the fallout or the misfunction of the band of heroes that he put together to defend Earth. That's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I certainly agree. I think that that 
would be the best version of the show and the most compelling one. And I think the aspects of this premiere that gave us little glimpses of either that introspection for from Fury, talking about the crisis of faith that confronted him and then followed him. And I think also, like, to your point about, and those quotes about the that idea of camaraderie, the fact that he chose, as you're noting, to recede from that, not only the impact that that had on him, but the impact that that had on other people. I mean, this is an episode and a series, ultimately, I think, that will hold him in esteem, but also in judgment. And that's certainly, that balancing act is certainly present in the in the premiere in a way that I find really interesting. The, the two questions I have about that are both related to a point you already made, which is the overall like MCU connectivity, which as you know, generally for a large stretch of the last few years, I have remained really enthusiastic about and a big fan of. Right. It strikes me like the number of times in this episode, we'll talk about a few of them in, in more detail when we go through the, the scenes, but the number of mentions of the blip, for example, like the number of things that either directly or through an illusion evoke Thanos or, or Tony or the Avengers, this previous time, the Infinity Saga, the thing that happened before, this show belonged in phase four. Like this is the actually like perfect kind of project to transition us into this next era because as we talked about a lot in phase four, so much of that was about mantle passing, yes, but also about the trauma of that period of like recovery and resetting. And Fury would have been a riveting figure and lens to examine and explore those ideas. It felt in some way like we had sort of just exited that period of reflection in the MCU. And so there's like just a little bit of a oscillating, like, are we moving forward into the multiverse? Are we still in the blip era? And I'm a little bit torn on it because I think it would be weird. I'm of two minds, Joe. I genuinely think it would be weird if the MCU yeah. just stopped acknowledging the blip and it's like, everyone's moved on. This is fine. Like, this would be the most consequential thing in, in people's lives for a considerable period moving forward. And somebody like Fury who had removed himself for so long and then had to finally confront it, whatever that moment of confront, whenever that moment of confronting comes is the moment of reckoning. So that's all fine. It just felt like, oh, yeah, blip. Like, this is what we were doing in Falcon. This is what we were doing yeah. in, you know? As you know, I hate the term blip, so I will just be saying snap. But, like, um, the... I th My suspicion is that the reason we're getting so many mentions of Thanos and the snap, blah, 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 is because the snap, it was a primo time and opportunity for opportunity. the scrolls yep. to do some mm -hmm. swap swapperoos. So That's I, fine. Again, I, then I, let's put the show in phase four. Yeah. When I that's mean, like I, the moment know, in time we exited. I don't know. Development wise, why it's here. But um, I, I think like relatedly that larger MCU connectivity question like is on my mind with in the intent of the show. And I, the, in, in this respect, sincerely, I'm, I'm eager to see where it goes. And I, I think any version of this could work really well. Like is, I'm curious to see how contained the, the invasion and the effects of the invasion are to this series and how sprawling the consequences are of whatever we learn inside of the series for the rest of the MCU moving forward. Because, you know, like we'll talk about that and looking, reveal in the opening scene back. and back. Yeah. yeah. What does it cause us to reassess from the past? But also if we think about some of the upcoming projects, right, we've got Captain America, Brave New World coming. We've got a Thunderbolts, Thunderbolts. movie coming. Like we've yeah. got a lot of, of stories that are, are 
centered in the political arena in a way that makes whatever happens in this show, I have to assume is going to play directly into those. And so that's the MCU. That's the name of the game. I've, I'm typically a fan of that. I like when these things feel like they impact each other. But does that leave enough room for the thing you're talking about, which is that more introspective and quiet on the streets with this person in that grimy room with that glass of bourbon saying comrade to a stranger across the bar who ends up showing up (laughs) as your nemesis a few scenes later. Like what will the balance be of the effects of the invasion for phase five and beyond and concluding the Nick Fury chapter inside of this series? No idea. Hopefully they can do both. Five hours to go. (laughs) All of the clocks on Sonya's wall are ticking. Let's go. Should we talk about uh, every scene in this episode of television? You want to dive deep? Yeah, let's do every single goddamn scene in order. Let's do it. We will start where the episode starts, Joanna, with your guy. And mine, Richard Dormer, Beric Dondarrion, <laughs> here in the MCU. What a thrill, but without a flaming sword or he's got a beard, but not the like utterly lush and regal resplendent beard that I'm accustomed to seeing I've also, in Westeros. <laughs> I've also always believed that Richard Dormer has one of the best voices of all time and that I could listen to him read the phone book. And while that is still strictly true, the American accent does a lot to uh, throw some cold water on my Richard Dormer voice uh, feelings. But you still got, you got treated to to multiple moments of top tier gravel. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's just wonderful. So our guy Dormer is press God and we would like to just know once again that it is press God. (laughs) With a D, not press God. (laughs) Not With two T's. Which is just shocking. Were it not for the fact that he is like the world's number one scroll conspiracy theorist, I would say that's scroll behavior to have your name be (laughs) press God with a D instead of Prescott. Was this the most shocking reveal of the episode of all the twists and turns that it's P-R-E-S-C-O-D? It bothers me so much to no end. (laughs) Joe has been really thrown by this. (laughs) You wrote it. You wrote uh, it so many times in our notes. And every time I'm like, surely it can't be the fish. It can't be the fish. <laughs> if you're listening to this and your name is Prescott with a D, I apologize. But I don't think those people exist. So let's go. <laughs> Prescott is not the only one in this opening scene, Joanna. Everett Ross. Here he is right at the beginning. Martin Freeman is with us. And I guess we'll call him Ross heavy air quotes. People can't see us doing heavy air quotes on Zoom, but he's revealed in the opening stretch of this episode to be a scroll. So what should we, what should we call him? Should we just call him Ross? Should we call him Sross? How do you want to handle this throughout the run? <laughs> this is going to be something we have to workshop in real time. Oh, but we don't Ro- have another Ross, like the real yeah, Ross. I was going to say episode, there's so maybe no we could just other call Ross, him Ross in this episode. We'll, co- we'll confront this later, perhaps. <laughs> scary. We will. Nick's we scary. Will. Oh, my God. Okay, so Ross answers yeah. the call. Heads to me, Prescott, who opens the series on a, a tone-setting note. There's a mission statement. There's an ominous portent. Imagine a world where information can't be trusted. Not very hard, is it? He talks about a fractured world where... The news isn't something you can rely upon where oh everybody really wants to focus on the people that they love. 
you love to turn on a Marvel show and escape reality. Yeah, I love I love escapism. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. Let's hear the rest of this speech, Carlos, please. But what if those people weren't who we thought they were? What if the ones closest to us, the ones we've trusted our whole lives, were someone else entirely? What if they weren't even human? Okay, I like like the score. First of all, I want to say I like the score. Secondly, just genuinely top tier hilarious American accent. And then thirdly, I want to say <laughs> I did like the way that this was yeah. put together where we're watching mm. Ross, quote unquote Ross, uh, traverse the city while we hear this. It's not, we're not watching Press God, uh, you know, r- r- rabidly gesticulate in front of his conspiracy board yet. And I, and I like, I like the voiceover with the cityscape sort of. Yeah. Sequence. It was a very moody. Yeah beginning and one that clearly tells us what we're in for and what the story is is going to be about we get to scan the cork boards the whiteboards all of the clippings papering every inch of the surface we'll talk about some of the particulars more in the easter egg sections you already mentioned the heist we see specific cities called out we see munich we see london etc 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 our guy ross from the jump we are suspicious for a couple reasons one when we last that, that. left <laughs> well, you I know we're always on. Uh, obviously, Wigwatch TM with Joanna Robinson is a staple here at the House of R, but I think we will be bringing back another favorite of yours from Andor and House of the Dragon, Hat Watch. Yeah, Cap Watch. Chris, Chris, Kristen Cole Memorial. Yeah, hat move watch. over, Kristen Cole. <laughs> There's some new hats in the mix. That, but like when we left Ross in Wakanda Forever, he had been in custody and then sprung. It doesn't quite makes sense to see him just back at work in this context. Though, again, we kind of have to accept at the beginning of any new project that we have some some spaces to, to fill in. But his reaction to hearing this is just not what we would be accustomed to from the Ross that we have spent time with previously, though now we, of course, have to consider after the reveal, when did this swap occur? This, by the way, is what Jessica will be breaking down in her video, what the implications of the Ross reveal are, when it might potentially have happened. So again, check that out if you haven't can I, yet. Can I give my not as, probably not as informed as Jess's uh, video theory theory? Mm-hmm. I mean, I would just say, I think it's post Wakanda. I feel like the Ross we saw in Wakanda forever was our Ross, real yeah. Ross. That's not the case for every character we're going to talk about, but I think that was a recent swap yeah, I think the question of there are a lot of questions. Like, when did they grab him? Is the real Ross just is he in, in Wakanda still? Is he in a no. fracking pod somewhere? Is he? I think dead? he's. A, no, I think I think I think we. I could be wrong, but you think he got scooped and he's in a fracking pod, and we'll see. I him in a think fracking this pod. is not the last we'll see of Martin Freeman in this season of television. Yeah, yeah, he the the guest star. Special guest star credit made me nervous, but also, yeah, I can still come back for I think, another I think, episode I think, like, later. I think I would say like one other episode. I don't think we're going to see him like throughout the series, but I could see him coming back for one other episode. The only thing I feel, I agree, I think this is a, a recent thing. The only thing I feel absolutely certain about is that it could not have been as far back as the first Black Panther because Shuri is performing a medical procedure on him. She would have been able to detect 
scroll biology, just for sure. So there's no way with with I also think be that far back. The relationship stuff with Valentine, like this is okay. This is the problem. Sorry, I know we're still in the first scene, but like this is the no, this no. is the problem of shape shifting storytelling. Um, because there's a potential advantage to it, and there's a huge potential disadvantage. And you and I will remember this fondly from the faceless man era of. of course. Uh, Game of Thrones, when everyone was constantly like, is that Arya? Is that Arya? Is that Arya? Is that Arya? Is that a faceless man? And I'm like, you can't ever, like, in order to tell a story effectively, like, you have to calibrate this carefully. Because we can't get emotionally invested in watching a character's story. Do you know what I mean? And then to have a rug pull. So there are certain characters, like, you know, everyone wants to talk about, like, is Sharon Carter a scroll? And if Sharon Carter is a scroll. That is a more satisfying interpretation to me of Falcon and the Winter Soldier than the one we got. And so that's interesting to me. But if you take another you remember character. Remember the power who, broker plot line? I don't want to. But if it turns out she was a scroll, then great. You know what I mean? But like, but like, let's say we took a character like Loki. Loki's not even a possibility, but let's say we did, and they were like, Whoa, Loki was a scroll the whole time. It's like I, you and I would be actively mad because we watched Loki go on this incredibly emotional journey that we were invested in. And so you have to be careful. And so, like, while Everett Ross didn't have like a hugely emotional arc in Wakanda Forever, like his relationship with Valentina and their like that whole back and forth felt significant. It felt like it was in the wrong movie, but it felt significant to what's going to go forward. And like, LOL, he was a scroll along is not a satisfying reveal for that movie for me, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that risk for the response from fans, I, I feel like this is just going to be much more contained than the the comics equivalent in terms I of timeline. I, I would be really surprised. With a, with, I would say with a few exceptions. I yeah. Think. Yes. Of maybe people we don't have that existing relationship with yet. If we find out certain new political figures who we have no real history with have been scrolls and shells for decades, like... (sighs) Okay, I'll I'll, I'll hold this. I'll hold this. Save it for the White House? Yeah, I'll save it for the White House. Prescott outlines that these five global terrorist strikes in the past year have each had this, this different group. A different group has claimed each of them. Right. But he says a violent chain reaction consuming the globe. Do you realize the entire globe is at war? So this is like he's outlining for Ross and us. Hey, these aren't isolated. Everything is connected. And there is an architect to that tension. That's how he puts it. The scrolls, he's certain, are behind it all. Now, we learned over the course of this episode that that is, in fact, true. They're trying to take over planet Earth and make it their home because Nick Fury never got him a new home. Whoops. (laughs) the stretch of setting up the plot moves right into some of that refresh exposition, literally including a, you know, the stories segue. This is where I I got, I was getting worried and we're only a few minutes in Carol Danvers, Nick Fury, scrolls finding Earth 30 years ago, the promise of a new planet. Now they want our planet earth. Scrolls could be anybody, anywhere, at any time. There could be thousands of them, tens of thousands, and you would never know. It's just a lot of, like, bullet point after bullet point after bullet point. Here's what's happened. Here's what's coming in the first few minutes. But also, I was wondering if you thought, almost independent of that, maybe it's a necessity. Maybe there's a a more deft way to handle it. Maybe it's a necessity. Was this the right way to give it to us? Because this is not a character we know. Would it have been more impactful 
to hear this from somebody that we have some sort of history with or an attachment to? Or did it make sense to give us this from a, a new person who is then immediately disposed of? I will say putting putting Martin Freeman in the scene, I think, was a mm-hmm. was a brilliant yeah. move because I like I was actively watching it the first time. I was like, there's so much clunky exposition here. And at the same time, Martin Freeman is just like a miracle in the way that he is being interesting to me. The eye glances, wow. hand, yeah, taking the, the tablet, looking like just, that shit. Gesticulating, like yeah. all this sort of stuff. He was great. You know, yeah. The exasperation. Dormer is great too, like in general. And like as a crackpot conspiracist, like this is fun casting. And then I do feel like they like sort of plus a little. They got fucking Barrick Dondarian. But like, uh, to your point, would it have been more interesting to see even like a, maybe like a buttoned up, like not Coulson, but like a Coulson-esque character unraveled would that have been interesting to us to see like the effect that this scroll conspiracy has taken on someone that we consider sort of a more, uh, you know, uptight uh, government type and someone we've met before? Yeah, I-, I could see that. It's just to me, it's less performance or characterization. It's more writing. It just. Yeah. It, oh, it, yeah. That, Nothing about the performance, just the character choice and the that dialogue. deafness. Like while I was watching it, I was like. I'm I was, I'm so sorry. It's not fair, but I was like, imagine how Andor would have handled this. Like, like when you think about like uh, scenes that I was thinking about are like scenes where Mon Mothma is trying to like talk to people at a party and like whispering while smiling. You know, and there's like just this. There are extra layers of something going on to keep the exposition interesting and the tension high. And two people alone in the room, even if one of them is a scroll, is not as you know is not as distracting to the exposition dump, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a, it's a great, it's a great point and a great comp. And there's also just so much info. Like there, it felt like there's not room for any of that around the data dump. Like we have to then find out from Ross that the scrolls have only been running their contact through Fury, that he is on Saber. We're like, okay, Saber, here's a keyword. Let's refresh, right? The space station that we see Furion in the Stinger and Far From Home. In the Marvel's trailer, which we've gotten so far, there's the Saber station with a with a label. So to your point from earlier, it's like a tie to the Marvels right there, established again. So we're like ingesting and processing a lot immediately. I did love when Ross was like, I need more than theories, I need evidence. And I'm like, my guy listens to podcasts. Ross is just, he's got a, a full feed. He's following. He's subscribing. He's sending emails to hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com. But of course, in this scene, he's fishing. He wants to see what Prescott really knows and how real the threat is. I want to take an audio clip of Martin Freeman exasperatedly saying, he's on Saber! And just like, That's anytime amazing. someone's like, where's this person? Where's Steve Rogers? And be like, he's on Saber! Like, I don't know. Like, what the <laughs> fuck do you want from me? He's on Saber. <gasps> oh, God. We have to say goodbye to Prescott because uh, Ross shot him in the chest right here. Now, Prescott was trying to strangle him because he rightly was like, Correctly. you give my secret tablet to Fury. You're not who you say you are. Scroll ass you. behavior. I see your tiny hat, sir. You are a scroll. Yeah. <laughs> so is this going to be one of the things that you track through the whole season? Anyone with a hat is a scroll. I mean, Nick Fury has a hat on. But then he did have, there was a a Nick Fury scroll, but also a real Nick Fury. I don't know. The style of the hat, the size of the hat. You need, you need more. You need more. Yeah, more more data. More episodes. Yeah. And then I, and then I will show you my absolutely bananas looking red string uh, hat theory conspiracy board. 
please do. I can't wait. <laughs> Jomi will be delighted to throw it up on, on Instagram. <laughs> Joe Ross flees, and we're out. We've got our first, but not our last, chase of the episode. You've got to have a chase in a spy thriller. Here it is. Calls Hill for the extract. And then he's, Ross shows up on her screen. So his biometrics or his voice or whatever are, are sophisticated enough to fool her tech. That was my interpretation. And that was also, I thought, maybe contrary to what we had already outlined, a data point that he could have been a scroll for a little longer, maybe. Like the extent of the infiltration. Hey, we're heading out to a new mission. We've got new comms. I've been around and on the team in my human shell for a minute here. A chase, uh, it usually goes best if the participants know how to properly jump uh, across the street or jump off of a roof. And neither of those things are true for the scroll impersonating Everett Ross. He's hit by many cars. Uh, he tries to jump off one roof onto another building as a pursuer who we eventually learn is Talos follows him and he just, just misses the jump and falls and dies. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing, but it's a, just a brutal, brutal way to go. That's and tough. the joy of it is that we get to see Ben Mendelsohn, our guy Talos, right back in front of our faces. Missed him. Love Ben Mendelsohn. Big Ben Mendelsohn podcast. When... Hill approaches and sees that it's Talos show, we get a kind of fascinating exchange. He's one of you, she says, as Ross turns into a scroll. And what does Talos say? No, he's one of them. To your point from earlier about this being ultimately not only the idea of maybe, oh, some of the scrolls who were expecting to be villains twist, they're actually fighting for something noble, fighting for something that we would support. They're on the side of good. The fact that not every scroll wants the same thing is, I think, a, a great and important choice and a much more interesting story to show us that there would be tension and dissension inside of the scroll ranks, that they would have a different, that they would have different beliefs, that they would have different desires, that they would have different timeframes, that they would have resentment, not only against people like Fury, but against people like Talos, who certain members of the scroll faction felt did not follow through on his promise either. It's also like a perfect um, spycraft sort of element to blur and muddy the waters and then the lines of what, who, who's on whose side, what's a side, where, where do I belong? And I think as we see later with Talos, when they're, when they wind up, you know, when Nick Fury winds up shooting and killing another scroll who was like actively fighting him, but he was like, but he's devastated because he, he's of two minds. He has right. two sides pulling on him. You know what I mean? Um, I, I was when I was doing a little bit of Lecare research when he was Lecare really did spend like a lot of his career shit talking James Bond. Um, the he's one of you, no, he's one of them quote here. Um, it pinged for me because Lecare wrote to the editor of a Soviet literary magazine about James Bond or actually about Ian Fleming. He's on your side, not mine, as in like. <laughs> James Bond is like propaganda against British espionage, like the British espionage uh, community or whatever. I just thought that that was so funny. But like the idea that we're constantly thinking of spies, especially when you've double agents, triple agents, blah, blah, blah. You don't know who, don't know who to trust. Who is on your side? Who can you count on? Et cetera, et cetera. Anything else on the Ross reveal? 
opening scene of the episode is the sooner than you thought we would get a reveal of this nature. Anything else about the implications, either looking backward or looking ahead that you want to you want to hit here? I wouldn't say sooner. Like as soon as this cold open started, I was like, one of the, one of these people is a scroll. Like, right, has got to be. Um, I think it's a great use of Martin of Everett Ross as like a minor character of Martin Freeman as like, an actor that we like, right? Mm-hmm. That we have mm-hmm. a yep. warm associations with. Um, and so I think I think that's like a perfectly placed kind of character. Whether or not again the whole thing was done as deftly as it might have been, um, I have some questions. But in terms of, you know, you like you hear constantly in the Marvel, various Marvel's writers room, whether it be like, who do we pick to survive the snap or who do we pluck out of our bench of characters to show up in this show or that show or the other, like Darcy's going to be in WandaVision or like blah, blah, blah. You know, they, they, they almost have them as like playing cards that they pull from. And I just imagine them plucking Everett Ross out and being like, Ross, that's a perfect, perfect. that's who yeah. we want the, in CIA, the band here. Yeah. Yeah. Politics, spycraft, but also like, yeah, you can weaponize well, the affection that the, yeah. the audience yeah. has. Great point. Then we get to be back with our guy, Nick Fury. At last, he returns to Earth, reunites with Talos and Hill. He is beamed down from space, looks, the silhouette and that we initially get looks more alien than human. This was a fascinating first visual for our reunion with Nick Fury. Hill takes him to the safe house and the reunion between Fury and and Talos, I thought was, even though again, there's a lot of exposition inside of it, emotionally like very touching and sweet these two the are great together. Touch. The forehead touch, which you know ca- calls back to the the Soren Marvel, yeah, uh, forehead touch. But just the you feel th- like you that was a moment where you really did feel the depth of history between the characters, the the things that they have lived through together and the things that they have shared. It was beautiful, and even just that initial like the sky plant discussion. First of all, it's interesting to see something that is a part of scroll history, a part of the scroll world, a thing that they grow and nurture, and then something that more more particularly connects to their family unit. This felt a little clunky and overt to me. The, a the- lot of the <laughs> a lot of the metaphors. I mean this, the chess, it's it's all quite on the yeah. nose and overt throughout the episode. There were this, I think maybe because it was one of the first ones didn't quite like elicit that response to me. Some of the later ones, I was like, we we don't need to be like led quite this actively into our <laughs> read of the the character's emotional state. But here we get that it's changed and she planted it. It's adapted to the planet. So this idea of adapting what is possible, what still can be possible. And that's when they embrace. And we learn that Soren's been killed, been killed, as we'll hear later in exchanges between Talos and Gaia by graphic by another scroll faction. This was very sad. I thought <laughs> would have loved to have Soren in the show. It's sad, but I also like don't. I mean, I don't feel like I really knew Soren that well. So like, um, but it's sad. But I have seen this theory float around, and and I think it might be true is that like a reason to take her off the board is to make sure we don't think that the Maria Hill who dies at the end of the episode, like, might yeah. be Soren, you know, or something like that. Right. Like, because, because Soren yeah. impersonated mm-hmm. Maria uh, in Far From Home. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but again, as you know, might be the like risk, slightly, the risk with slightly <laughs> logistical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, this is where we get some of the blip talk, Joe. 
After the blip, you were different, and then you disappeared. Carol Danvers disappeared. So did Gaia. What did you think of the Carol mention here? I love this because um, it's always been a complication that they were like, okay, we're going to do Carol, Captain Marvel, Carol as like a prequel in the 90s. Um, And then she's just going to be gone. And there have been occasional mentions of like, you know, I had to, you know, there were, there were things that I had to do to protect the galaxy or whatever, but it's, it's always still a constant question of like, where has Carol been when earth has needed her sometimes? And so to make it like a feature, not a bug and to make her disappearance part and parcel with this larger Nick Fury, like abandonment issue of like, you abandoned, you said you were going to do this for us and you abandoned us. And it makes it like a frailty of a hero, not just a like yada, yada, uh, she's just off planet, you know, like, um, I think, I think that's smart. And I would, I'm curious to see how that plays out. We know that that is of concern, uh, in the Marvels. We know that idea of Carol Danvers has abandoned the people who are depending on her is an important story going forward. So, yeah, I, I, I like this. The, you know, we, we've been helping you for all these years to ensure that you kept your promise, reminding not only, Nick Fury and then, you know, eventually Carol of that failure. But us, like, th- this is so much time. You know, Captain Marvel is set in the 90s. Yeah, 30 like, years. To, yeah. to have Talos and others working on your behalf and enlisted in your cause and to not deliver the thing that you told them you would is, like, foul. Oh. <laughs> yes, though... Uh, now that we know that the scrolls live a whole lot longer, what is 30 years to a scroll? Well, that's a fair point. You know, <laughs> we're our guys, so what, 136? And he's like, yeah. I haven't even hit my midlife crisis spending yeah. spree. I yeah. loved when when he then said, What was yours to Fury? Oh, yeah. This is later in the episode. He said, The Avengers. I was like, Honestly, great incredible joke. flex. <laughs> great joke. Great joke. Incredible flex. No, but Naya. I am. Uh, I'm I'm mostly joking. Like, yeah, t- to not make good on that promise for 30 years gives, of course, uh, Gravik a, a really Mo- understandable motivation. motivation. Yeah. This is like that classic MCU, you create your own demons idea. And I like that it's yeah. inside of this premiere presented not only as true for, for Fury, but also for, for Talos because the resentment is, in some cases, very personal, like with his daughter, with Gaia, with Amelia Clark's character. But with Gravik, we learned that he swapped in for the council seat. Talos has been exiled. Later, when we go to this secret nuclear plant compound and we see, you know, 500 strong, we'll we'll hear Gaia say, so many scrolls are seeking refuge there. Not all of them are the warriors, right? That counts around 100, given elsewhere in the episode. But how many people does Talos have right now who he can trust? The numbers are not on his side here, or Furies, at all, based on the math of this initial episode, which is interesting. Like, the board is is really skewed in Gravik's direction. Well, on the number side. But again, it goes, back to the, yeah. it goes back to that muscle question that we have of, like, but on Fury and, and Talos' side, there are the Avengers. Right. I mean, they're not in this show, but they're around. You know what I mean? One of them's here. You mentioned this already, Joe, but Gravik immediately positioned us as that other kind of classic MCU trope, the villain who has a point, right? This yeah. presentation that he, from 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 Hill and this conversation with Hill and Talos and Fury that he 
preys on the collective rage of young displaced scrolls. Well, like, okay, causing a global war, planning and executing terrorist attacks, obviously, objectively, that's bad. Trying to find a home for your people and rebelling against the supposed allies who said they were going to help you do that and then didn't for three decades is something that we would understand. So what level with Gravik after this first episode, like, do you think how much of the villain who has a point stuff will be able to come to the fore? I mean, our first real <laughs> interaction with him at the end of this episode is shooting Maria Hill and blowing Not up right. the public square. It's tough to come back from that. Though, you know, Killmonger, like, his introduction is also quite violent and et cetera, et cetera. But, like, I think that my investment in Gravik has a lot to do with the casting of Kingsley Benadire. Um, You and I both love um, the High Fidelity uh, TV series adaptation, but he also did a great depiction of Barack Obama. He's done a great depiction of Malcolm X. Like, this is someone who has, like, done really interesting portrayals of leadership sort of across the spectrum. Um, And so I'm really interested to see, like, what he... I just love him. And, And so... I don't think that this episode gave us crumbs, uh, graphic crumbs, shadowy shots of him from behind windows, et cetera, et cetera. We know he takes his tea, but we don't know much more. And so I'm really, I'm so really many hopeful. cubes of sugar. I was that has shocked. to be that has to that has to come back later, right? Like a, a whole we know we know it's from him Gaia because we've got our scroll wine and our scroll fruit and all of our wonderful foodstuffs, and then our graphic is just loading. Sugar I feel like we're going to we're gonna see a tell. character later put a bunch of sugar in their tea yeah. and we're going to know it's Gravik, yeah. right? Like that has to be why that's there. But um, so really it's I, I'm I'm coasting on uh, Benadir fumes right now for Gravik, but there's a lot of potential for this character for sure. Nick Fury announces after hearing that his entire uh, species is uh, in peril of ceasing to exist if Gravik wins. Says he's going to go for a walk. But before we get to enjoy that walk with him, we have a little detour. We go to the White House. Joanna, please take us through the scene with (gasps) Brody and President Ritson. I'm so excited. Okay, first of all, Dermot Mulroney's here. Silver Fox Prez, Dermot Mulroney. (laughs) Fun fact I learned about Dermot Mulroney via the Today Show this week. Did you see this clip about him talking about playing the cello? No. Okay, Dermot Mulroney. He's a cellist? Is is so good at playing the cello and is friends with Michael Giacchino that in the last 15 years, he has played the cello on 20 different film scores just as like a a studio (laughs) musician. He's like, I just go into the studio with all the other musicians and I sit in the back and I play the cello. Wow. I lo- this is my new favorite fact of all time. Dermot Mulroney, uh, stealth cellist. Will this be a subplot in Tar 2? The Tar inning? <laughs> Might he be stealth something else? Let's find out, right? So we get... Brody's here. Ritson's here. We do a little, a little walk and talk. And we're talking about how Fury has left Saber. Uh-huh. Yeah. And... Uh, Ritson says, Agent Fury is building out the most complex aerospace system in the history of mankind. He can't just leave. A little Mulroney exposition for us. How do you feel about this description of a complex aerospace system in the history of mankind? I think with Saber, there are obviously a number of, both from WandaVision, from the comics, sword comps to make. And that will probably prove the more uh, one-to-one 
comp moving forward, but I thought it was impossible not to think of Tony and Ultron and Tony's suit of armor around the world intentions hearing this. And in a way that I really liked that Fury, who is grieving Tony still and living in that despair of everything that happened after Thanos, would be making some of the same mistakes that his number one boy made. This is just such a Tony kind of kind of move. We can protect everyone and everything. It'll be fine. How long till we get the version of Ultron? My fault. Saber. My fault. <laughs> my B. Rhodey, Rhodey says that they uh, like intercepted a message from Hilda Fury. Can't decode it. And they say, no, neither of them responding. They're effectively a wall. You had some questions about this. I don't. Tell me what your curious your confusion is. I guess I just Yeah, I am not a spy nor a government agent, but just didn't understand this. Like it made me and it's it gets into that larger question of what what level of suspicion and constant doubt is too much to like spark in your audience where we question literally every line that comes out of somebody's mouth or the way that they're speaking, the things that they say, how they're presenting it. But I was just like, this kind of doesn't seem like roadie to me is roadiest girl Ritson. We know Harrison Ford has been cast to play Thunderbolt Ross and that he's going to be the president. So Ritson's time is, I mean, this is like, it's just a lock. It's numbered. Is it because he's already a scroll? Is it because the scroll are going to okay. kill him going okay. for the white house? But like, why would it be weird that spies are AWOL and out of contact? They're spies. Shouldn't it be inherent in the proposition that there are times when you can't contact them? Unlike the lead character of Burn Notice, I'm not a spy, but I just want to let you know that like, um, what I know about spies, I mostly know from Mission Impossible. And like, aren't there things where like you have to check out, check in, or they leave you out in the cold? Okay. They're AWOL after a day? Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. (laughs) To your point about know. who's a scroll here. So earlier yeah. you and I were texting about Ritson and we were like 100% scroll. I said Sotus. Someone on Twitter was like Scrotus. I was like, love it. Scrotus is really great. Fantastic. I am now, I'm now. You're walking it back. I'm walking back a little bit because now I believe 100% Rhodey is a scroll. 100%. So, I think so. And that, and that Ritson may or may not be. I rewatched that interaction a few times. And the fact that it ends with Ritson, because it's either two scrolls or the real Ritson and Skrull Rhodey. Those are my only two yeah. possibilities that I will interpret. And at the end of it, Ritson like hisses at him, deal with it. You and could so read that, that as them both being scrolls and they're in cahoots. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Is that two yeah. scrolls talking to each other or is it the president talking about Rhodey? But here, let's talk about Rhodey for a second. Why Rhodey is the best candidate for secret scroll. Because again, we're talking about like longstanding hero, you know, um, Perfect for them to inhabit because he doesn't have inherent superpowers. He's got a super suit. But as far as the Avengers go, if they're going to like be an Avenger, Rhodey's a great one to be. Armor Wars, you know, what happens when when the, the armor tech gets out into the wider world? Well, here's the thing is like, this is this is my new favorite theory. And I should say um, our your friend of mine, Dave Gonzalez, was the one who informed me about this theory that's going around. There have been some rumblings from the creators. Again, we know no spoilers, but they were they're like, one of the scroll reveals will be emotional. Okay. So, like, would it be emotional for us to find out that Rhodey is a scroll? Maybe a, a bit. You know what I mean? And like what we've seen him in Falcon the Winter Soldier, et cetera, et cetera. Like, okay. But what if, like, when when did they swap out Rhodey? And what if they swapped him out? before Tony dies and the real Rhodey doesn't know that Tony's dead yet. And we watch the real, 
Don Cheadle, Don Cheadle, Rhodey find out that Tony Stark is dead because he's been in the fracking pod this whole time. Here's the journey I just went on. <laughs> yeah. Getting to see that now would be just heartrending, devastating. I would love it. However, there are a few things in the history of the MCU that you simply cannot compromise in any way. And Tony's death is one of them. Rhodey's one of three people who's there when Tony dies. Like, if he got that, if, if a fucking scroll right. got, got half that of those final moments, instead of, yeah. like, having more time with Peter or Pepper, I would just, I would actually consider that, I think, outrageous. A violation. Okay. Yeah. I think that's fair enough. That's it. I like the theory. Show I'm no, no, no. myself. No, no. I was thinking about it. I was thinking about, like, the funeral scene. Like, I don't want anyone at the funeral scene even to have been a scroll. You know what I mean? But the idea of, of because Rhodey was Rhodey was not snapped. Like, you know, Rhodey, like, this is during the snap when things are chaotic. Rhodey is, like, on the council with everyone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Rhodey is just, He's like, there with Natalie, Except it's in. not. It's definitely Barton. Yeah. Dug in. So it's, um, I don't know. I have, uh, I agree. I largely agree with you. I'm, I'm holding space for it, though. I I think Rhodey is a scroll. To be clear, like oh, my yeah, number yeah. one top but, candidate. But, but the, in terms of the timing, the when yeah, I would love for the swap to have happened after Tony's death. That would be a tough one. So again, wild wild theorizing. Yeah, but like, if we get Martin Freeman as the real Ross back for an episode, I would love an episode where the real Rhodey and the real Ross are like working together to try to escape from like. They're Narkina Five, essentially, like from fra- from Frackville, Frackville, USA. You know what I mean? Like, I I would, you know, I would love some sort of prisoner of war escape plot. Uh, That's good. The- it's good. Yeah. If they want fewer andor comps, they should definitely do a prison break episode. <laughs> they don't want fewer andor comps. You want fewer andor comps? They were like, yes. <laughs> We are I Andor. want them to want <laughs> us to think about Andor, one of the best shows we've ever gotten to watch less often when watching this show. Anyway, oh, Rhodey's boy. definitely I like a scroll. it. I like this theory. Yeah. Great. A Absolutely. great candidate. Again, this is a major character. And like Armor Wars then uh, hopefully is, no matter when he was swapped out, the real Rhodey grappling with loss loss of control loss of power like you know the the trauma of having been abducted and losing time you know even if it's just a little bit of time so yeah yeah and absolutely. and i could see i could see the reveal of rody being a scroll resulting in the death of ritson like what if he just kills the president and that's how we know that that's a scroll or something like that do you know what i mean or to make dem- room for with apologies to president ritson we have to make room for harrison ford in the mcu it's so. important. it's important he's on the clock all right all right with apologies, of course, to Dermot Moroni. It's time to talk about Olivia Coleman. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> Fury's on his walk, Joe. He is strolling the streets of Moscow, earning a lot of looks from characters who will come back into play at the end of the episode as many shell forms that Gravik takes. Fury passes people kissing on a bench. There's a long look from a woman who will be one of the shells who recurs. A kid playing with a beach ball who will be in the scene at the end. His hen- two henchmen grab Fury and bring him to Sonya. And we are treated to the absolute magic of having one of the great, genuinely greatest performers of our time mm-hmm. on a television show 
every week in the Marvel Universe. What a gift. Carlos, can we hear this clip? So, did you just have me extraordinarily renditioned by a group of your thugs? Well, you looked extraordinary. Oh, you should only scratch the surface of mediocrity. <laughs> Incredible. Exceptional. I thought that was easily the highlight of this episode. This oh, scene yeah. was my favorite this of the scene. episode. But that, that line just, were you not extraordinary? Absolutely killed me. Wonderful. What does she make of their dynamic? We get so many little lines right away that indicate the depth of their history, how long it's been since they've seen each other, allusions to their drink orders. This is where we get the, 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 the piss shelf line when Fury is saying that she knows he prefers bourbon. The allusion to the, the, the ruining of her expensive flat city, which is, of course, a, a callback okay. to... Just London. Just <laughs> London and Mysterio <laughs> and the events of Far From Home, et cetera, et cetera. Fury's making his way before the drink around the office, remarking upon the the, the clocks, another Licare thing, of course. And this is when he plants a camera lens on the eyeball of an owl, a bronze owl. Now, my, we're kind of going to always, we used to do in some pods, Theory Corner is a separate segment. We're just sort of always in Theory Corner in our secret yeah. invasion pods. That's how it's going to go. Yeah. My feeling on this is, I have a couple, a couple, I came down in a couple places. One, later when Sonia is just dunking on Fury, saying that he's not ready. He's off his game. If he can't stop her goons from getting them, how's he going to see Gravik and his people coming? And he's like, I wanted them to bring me to you. One, I believe him. I think that he did want that to happen so that he could get to her and plant the lens. I also think that she knows he did that. There is no way that she doesn't suspect when he's going around her room touching every surface that Nick Fury, the spy of spies, has planted something in her office. And so it makes me wonder if the scene that we see later where there is this like, compared to her very like loose air here, a very like stiff, here are the details of who is making this bomb and where it will be exchange that that felt like a staged conversation to me because she knew Fury was watching. Where did you come down on all of that? And how was, what did you feel about the scene overall and the dynamic between Samuel L. Jackson and Olivia Coleman, Nick Fury and Sonia? I love this scene. I do believe that Nick Fury got himself intentionally nabbed. I think it's a weird rookie mistake to like kind of say that he did or whatever. Um, I am not following you down the second part of this theory, though I'm happy to be wrong. But to me, it feels like a complication too far for um, for an MI6 agent to suspect a spy no, no, no. in her office. No, for a Marvel show. I mean, I know that I'm out here like quoting swaths of liquor aid to you, so like you know, I'm I'm like placing the bar high as well. But I'm just sort of like in a show where where their hope. Being, I think, to blow our minds with like a roadie reveal or something like that. I don't know that th that there are these this many twists and bends in the road, but I, I'm happy to be wrong. Uh, this is this is one that I'm not going to follow you on, but that that means you get all the joy of gloating if you're right. So hold on to that. <laughs> oh, I would say I'm heading into my secret invasion experience prepared to be wrong about like 97 percent of the things that I say. It's good. Um, the clock thing pings something else for me actually because because I'm on my like living my best uh, third man life. Um, there's this line, iconic line in the third man where Orson Welles' character um, says, don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. Like the fella says, in Italy, 
For 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So, like, I don't know, the clocks, the, like, orderliness of the clocks Mm -hmm. um, really, really popped that up for me. I think it's interesting— um, I love, and this is such a, this is such a classic iconic, um, I don't know about you, but I always think about like Chris Ryan when I, when I think about espionage things and I, of I course. like, yeah. I know that he and Andy did not have a great time with this episode of television, but like thinking about, I've had conversations with Chris about this very kind of scene, which is two old spies who have such a history together and maybe they were on opposite sides of something but the the history is though it's been so long and nobody else understands what they went through the way that they understand you know what i mean that kind of special two old spies connection uh which we see in slow horses etc so it's one of the best just like, things about yeah, yeah about jackson lamb and in slow horses yeah is uh that and him saying you can wash a coat <laughs> historic <laughs> It's remarkable. What about the way that he eats noodles? Um, As you know, loud chewing really bothers me, so I had a really hard time with that scene, even though it was hysterical. (laughs) Watch Slow Horses is what we're saying. But I think um, this is is exactly the kind of stereotypical espionage Le Carre scene pulled off masterfully by two incredible charismatic performers who exactly know what they're doing here. And then as you wrote in our notes and I completely agree. And then it just sort of lands with a clunk when they talk about Thanos, like in a way that we don't need to know, uh, like underlining a point that needs no underlining because it's just, it's not subtext. It's the text. This of, was of like, the, this you know. scene was magic. Yeah. I, it was the equivalent to me of like blowing a no hitter in the ninth. You're there. Like you have I understand done that. it. Genuinely. And you as Joanna, a <laughs> lifelong baseball enthusiast, know what it's like to get into that ninth inning. I do. <laughs> no hits on the board. And then, man, there it is. Just like a dribbler. Why? <laughs> I think Thanos' snap changed you, taught you that no matter how hard you fight for what's right, there's always someone stronger to undermine you. We know. I think there's... I think the story they're trying to tell, per that earlier Samuel L. Jackson quote that I read from Empire, is the world underestimating Fury because he is older, physically unwell, like all yes. this sort of stuff like that. I mean, that. she literally calls him this new, rather old Nick Fury right. right before that, which is quite rude. Which is why I think it's possible that she does not think he planted something in her office. Do you know what I mean? Only because really I think that's Really underestimating him. I think that's yeah. the story they're trying to tell. But like, if I if I were writing a role for Olivia Coleman, I I would not let her have anything but but sharp edges. So yeah, you know, yeah. I did love when she said, "Is that why you came down from your space station? You feel responsible?" Like, even though that's also very overt and direct. Like, it, but I it love did the way she you feel, says that. Yeah, the, come the, down from your space station. Like, it's yeah. so it's so condescending. I absolutely yeah, absolutely. Love it. Like, she's just hurling. That guilt that is already just consuming him right on top of him. He's kind of like, you know, to your point from a few minutes ago about should he have said, well, I let them capture me, which I kind of liked because he's like, hey, I, I've still got it. Like, don't, don't don't count me out yet. 
it was interesting when he pointed out that he had, knows so much more about the scrolls than anyone else and has been dealing with them for 30 years because it gets a little bit of an own goal given the context. Like, do you want to remind everyone that you were the guy in charge of this relationship when it is all crumbled in front of us? And it has given her reason to hesitate when he pitches good old-fashioned team up. She <laughs> describes him as a, quote, rather pointless <laughs> potential partner, which again, is just, this is Nick Fury. Like, let's show some respect. This is just exceedingly rude, but it was very funny. <laughs> so very, very, very funny. Funny in a much different way was the title card. 312 km kilometers southwest of Moscow. This like had me in stitches. <laughs> Did you break out Google Maps? Were you plotting the course? Do you think very precise that in Southwest Moscow, they also enjoy turquoise jewelry and (laughs) Tex-Mex? Okay. I actually loved this opening, right? Again, in in the world of espionage, a a code call and response. What do you want, Beto, not Beto, this this, uh, scroll that we meet with, a fetching hat says home in my own skin. I love that I love phrase. That. Home in my own skin. Me too. Great writing. Love you understand that. what they're fighting for. It is beautiful writing and you understand what they're fighting for. Who yeah. wouldn't want that? Home in my yeah, own skin. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, on the Andor beat, uh, your favorite topic, um, the Andor. Andor is my favorite topic. <laughs> The Andor twofer of espionage plus rousing rebel resistance rhetoric, et cetera. Um, We got an email from a listener who was like, I see the espionage. I don't see the like resistance element. And it's like, I mean, that's, that's that's what graphics doing. Like this is the, this is the resistance is, is, is these scrolls living in a, you know, in, in pseudo Chernobyl. Um, so scroll scroll. Well, they can live in the abandoned plants, Joe, because they the radiation doesn't uh, doesn't impact them, and those plants are not on the grid. So a lot of hideouts, very convenient for Gravik and Co. Can I just say that, like, I know you and I have collectively spent so many hours staring at her, um, and we've also, you know, probably been been near her. I always forget how absolutely minuscule Amelia Clark is. She's the tiniest person in the world and she's like so charming and charismatic and here she comes but I'm also like that is a tiny little <laughs> lady. I was um, absolutely thrilled to see her. It's just great to be back with Amelia Clark. Gaia. Gaia. With a welcome to new Scrollos, Joe. And food. Sustenance. A snack in the glove compartment of a car. But it seemed like, like a like a weird snack. a weird fruit in the glove. Yes. Like would you? The fruit is our homeland, though. So that's something. Right. But would you put a papaya in the glove box? Like, would I eat anything organic that had just been sitting in a glove box? Oh, yeah, likely that's loose. Yeah, loose, unwrapped. <laughs> no ice pack. Yeah, aluminum foil. A Lucy. You know, like I don't. Nary uh, a sheet of wax paper in sight. No. Unlikely. That said, if it had been ages since I had gotten to enjoy the taste of something that reminded me of home. Like if it's someone, a, if I hadn't been to Maryland in a long time, a how dare you? A crab cake. <laughs> a crab cake? Sorry. If someone pulled out a crab cake, you know, if someone pulled out a steamed crab covered in old base seasoning and I could 
feel it hit my bloodstream. Yeah, but just when the like, shell cut my hands. Their hand reached into the glove compartment, and it's just a crab cake, no wax paper. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what do you this... think about the the wine? We only grow scroll produce here. Drink scroll wine. Wear scroll skins. Whatever dangers you risk getting here, know they're worth it. Wonderful. What do you think cocktail hours like here in New Scrollos? Um, I bet that scroll wine is disgustingly sugary, uh, given what we know about their drinking taste. I do bet you it's like, like a, a sweet wine. No, I hate dessert you wine. Oh. Like a fucking Gewurztraminer. What Ugh. about like a nice, little lovely, like a port or a cream uh-uh. sherry? No, oh, uh-uh. love, no. love. All right, does you have a, you have new food fodder to chime in on, folks? At Hobbits and Dragons at gmail.com. I like a dry, like a bone dry Sauvignon Blanc or a bone bone dry Champagne. Okay, interesting. Here's my favorite thing about New Scrollos <laughs> slash Scroll Noble is that <laughs> Scroll Noble is. Kids playing soccer. Yeah. It's very sweet. Uh, is it like this is this is what we saw also in Ethan Hawke's uh, cult yeah. in Moon Knight. Yeah. And it's I like feel everybody's like everybody's making soup together. It looks wonderful. It's a great way to establish. No, we are not a terrorist organization or no, we're not a murder cult. But guess what they are? They are a terrorist organization. And Ethan Hawke had broken glass in his shoes. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. was anyone here walking around with broken glass in their sandals? They're just playing footy, you know? I am hopeful um, that we all equally enjoyed the moment when Amelia Clark said, the longer you stay in your shells, the harder it is for people to detect you. And all of us at home were like, ah, we get to look at Amelia Clark's face a bunch and Kingsley Benadir's face a bunch. And Thrilling. now they have a plot reason why. Yeah, um, this was great. Definitely hilarious. handled in one line. You will not be seeing scroll prosthetics on Amelia not not often yeah that's for sure yeah yeah absolutely wonderful uh we get a little parting of the ways with Beto and Gaia here some ominous large doors some big metal doors you always wonder what's behind there and this is said aloud what's behind victory Joanna that's what real Daenerys Targaryen energy behind that victory I felt it it took me back I had to work through it and what does that mean? What is victory? Well, we see these fracking pods. Not only are the scrolls taking the shape, the form, the face of a human shell, such as a skin suit, you got to know how to pull off the impersonation. They're taking their memories. Now, we saw this technology back in Captain Marvel. We're see- seeing it here in a genuinely like harrowing and horrifying way. It is a conveyor belt. It is just pod after pod of stripping and pulling of memory of pod after essence. pod, like the Ringerverse feed, just cranking, mm-hmm. like Chris Ryan pod. on the watch. You know, <laughs> his crank children. <laughs> <laughs> and we we witness Gaia go over to join and watch what is basically an initiation. This is the a member of the. Americans Against Russia, AAR, one of the groups that will now be used by Gravik and Co. as a front for their attack. And we get an exchange between Pagan and Brogan. Pagan is a character in the comics. Do you think Electra will be making an appearance in <laughs> what's, what's What's Jen Garner up to? You know, <laughs> that's that's my question. Dream. We get a, re- a repetition here, like a recurrence of that home in my own skin line. What is your name? Warrior. What is your fight? Scrollos. What is your dream? 
home and my own skin. I love this. Um, I thought this was great writing. Like, you know, the call and response. Incredible stuff. And I think that also that sub... We're going to be talking about a lot. I think this season is this idea, this question of identity, right? And so the idea that you like, what is your name? This is a character who has a name, but they say warrior. But subsuming of your identity into the cause... And and also, I mean, for the scrolls who have lived here, like for Gaia, who was a child when we met her in Captain Marvel, has lived her life on Earth. Um, like what you know, how much of you? Uh, like we we talk about this a lot when we talk about sort of like body snatching or or whatever uh, face swapping uh, stories. Is like, what does it do to you psychologically? To to stay in that skin, to stay in your in your Amelia right. Clark shape. Yeah, shell, when does that you know start to feel like it is who you are at a certain yeah. point? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. I thought I'm glad you called out the warrior thing because I think there's that interesting then tension inside of home in my own skin idea because there's a beauty to that and a power to that that we just discussed, but also like if you are losing your sense of individuality, one of the things we we chat about a lot is when we talk about Star Wars and we talk about like the clones. and how important it was in the animated series, The Clone Wars, for example, to see not only the personalities of each of the clones, but the moments where they took a name. They said, this is who I am, and this is what the name that I have given myself or my my comrades have given me like says about what is unique and specific to me. These scroll warriors are stripping that away. And so is it your own skin if you're not allowed to be who you are? I think it's really interesting to, to hop forward to a second to that scene where Gravik puts an unholy amount of sugar in his tea. Um, when Pagan is talking to him and he says, we're the circle, no one else. Is that to protect me or the cause? You are the cause. I'm not the cause. The cause is home. I think that exchange is so interesting because one, you know, thinking of, again, Kingsley Benadir has played the likes of Barack Obama and Malcolm X, this idea of like cult of personality or just sort of like the, the leader who becomes this like figure. So you are the cause, like you're the, per- you know, Gravik, you're the person I follow. You are the thing, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, it's not about right. me. The cause it's is like, home. yeah, we, we, we dissolve our individuality into the larger cause. That's the ideology that he's preaching here. You know what I mean? And I think that feeds back into this idea of what is your name, warrior, et cetera, et cetera. I thought that exchange was really riveting and like interesting to revisit and try to read what Gravik is like emoting and conveying there because there's this simmering intensity when he says, I'm not the cause, the cause is home, trying to suss out that dynamic. There's like a a boldness initially when Pagan comes over with this information about Fury's turn and then like almost like a, a shrinking in the face of that rejection, right? And that's like, again, that balance of, well, if you have that level of power to get people to follow you, to make them feel your wrath, then you you are you are the cause. You are the rallying point around the cause, at least. And so if you reject that because you fear it or because you don't want them to see that it is true, like where do the scales tip? I'm really curious to see how that plays out over over the season. Quick quick little scene, but a good one. Not since Hank Pym trained Scott <laughs> Lang to control the ants has a cube of sugar played such a central role in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But before that, we had another stretch with 
Fury and Hill and Talos, this was that moment that we talked about earlier where they are watching this exchange between Sonya and one of her men about Paprishkin and the Dirty Bombs, where they're going to be. I loved when Talos was like, she's cheeky. <laughs> no, but like, it's the Ben, she's cheeky. Like that Ben Mendelsohn, just dry, Fantastic. dry as a bone. Love it. Absolutely delightful. What do you think of this exchange uh, about scroll attractiveness? Talos uh, noting that he's considered good looking among his people and Fury's like, I've seen some good looking scrolls and you are not one. How did this sit with you? Absolute bullshit. Ben Mendelsohn is like, Ben Mendelsohn is one of the most like magnetic, bizarrely magnetic people that has ever existed. So absolutely. I believe that Moss to the Flame, Talos can get it. Uh, I mean, though, I guess if we're adhering to strict canon, Ben Mendelsohn is really just the old, the old shell, you know, that has nothing to do, I guess, with whether he's handsome as a scroll. Do you think he meant his shell or his scroll form? Why not both is my question. (laughs) Here's what I think is the even more significant part of this sequence, whether or not Sonia is putting on a false front. Right. And if she is, then it's just, I guess, to get. Nick and Maria to do her work, dirty work for her, I suppose. Right. Fury wants to attack MI6. Talos can't believe it. Fury's like, scorched earth. Yeah, we are in a race with Sonia Fallsworth, who celebrates the scorched earth policy, meaning she will annihilate any and everyone who's ever even heard of the name Gravik. And like, again, this feeds into a lot of um, spy stories. uh, This idea of like, the spy or or the figure, the MI6 figure or whatever, who it, whoever it is, who's like um, at any cost, victory at any cost or what, or what do the little people matter? Um, I'm going to hit you with another third man quote. Everyone just go watch the third man. What a great movie. Um, and, and there's this great quote where he goes, you know, I never feel comfortable on these sort of things. Victims don't be melodramatic. Look down there. Tell me, would you really feel any pity if one of those dots Stop moving forever. If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spare? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. The only way you can save money nowadays. So like this idea of like the collateral damage and and the way, I, I suppose, when you're a spy or when you've been at the game long enough to be as cynical as some people become, like you can't think of humanity or the other lives that way. So you've got Sonia on one end of the spectrum, and then you've got Talos, as we find out, on this understand, like too soft, too merciful, too hesitant, all this sort of stuff like that. And so Fury is pushing against that right here, right? He's where, saying, so, he, but where is the sweet spot? Like Fury is yeah. Fury in Fury's own mind. He's got the right balance, the balance. of mercy mm-hmm. and 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 scorched earth or whatever. But like, does he? You know? Well, I thought it was interesting too that he wasn't only projecting his maybe personal philosophy. Like at first it felt that way when he said, You want to save innocent scrolls, you're gonna have to hurt some people. But then what does he do? He points out what Gravik thinks about Talos, that they will try to weaponize. Gravik knows that mercy is your weakness. The madness of mercy, our, our old favorite Ned Stark talking point like but that's already it's already used in this episode because uh, my interpretation of what happens is that gravic dispatches gaia to her dad 
I mean, I know people are like, that wasn't really Gaia or whatever. You can decide that if you want. But like when Gaia goes to tell Talos about the marked bags and all that sort of stuff like that. And I think she's acting on Gravik's orders in that. Is that your interpretation? What do you think? Um, I don't know. I think they left it open to okay. either because like when she goes back to the base, she doesn't rat out her dad to Hagen. That we see, so, but I feel like that's a... Yeah, and like we don't see the bag handoff either, so they leave it open there too. Like, did she actually bring decoy bags and lie or did someone else swap them because they're onto her? Maybe they know that. I think I think either either would be in play at this point, which but if they I know, guess is if, interesting. If, if, well, no matter what then, they're operating under an assumption that, of course, Taylor would have a weakness for... His daughter. If he has a weakness for a random art dealer, but, right? Who's not yeah, an art dealer, that was the scene that I was thinking he, of when he's like, "I don't, you know, I, I got it." And it, part of it is like, does he just want to prove that he's capable? No, no, no. Like I think the, it's like I don't he, want any. Scrolls yeah, he doesn't to want die, scroll, right? scroll blood yeah. on his hands. But yeah. I think in terms of the way in which Gravik can weaponize that, yes. Gaia is the best instrument for that. For sure, right? Yeah. yeah, he's willing to do anything and to use anyone, mm-hmm. and his opponent isn't. Or at least Talos. Thus far. Maybe Furious. Right. Um, speaking of our our favorite bomb-making painter and that whole sequence, before we learn that Paprishkin is, in fact, also a scroll, got that, that scroll strength when they start to fight, before that whole exchange, this was a very amusing sequence. We have the Louis XV chair <laughs> moment. I loved, uh, as already mentioned, when Talos was like dunking on the quality of the shitty little paintings, but also when he then went out of his way to to say, we know you're lying specifically because we know that your wife has left you and is fucking a soccer player in Miami. Ben Mendelsohn's so funny. Tough crowd. (laughs) That was just absolutely What I I do think is a little funny is like, so Talos and and, um, this other scroll are fighting and they're both super powered so they're both you know they've go- both got scroll strength so they're both evenly matched then we get the Gaia Hill fight which is I was like yes Gaia wins but should she not have won so much faster than she did since Maria Hill is just a person you know what I mean fighting her yeah well and also Hill doesn't recognize her so was your interpretation of that that she had taken the guy had taken the Amelia Clark form pretty recently. Yeah, relatively recently. Yeah, we don't know how long it's been since Maria's seen Gaia. Hill dispensed with easily in the tunnel, not dispensed with permanently quite yet. So who else has to pursue? Because Gaia's got the, 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 the bombs in the pack. Dad. Intense sequence here, Joanna. He's like, mom's dead. It was a weird, it was a weird exchange about mom's This could dad. not have been communicated previously. <laughs> so weird. <gasps> very, 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 very strange. How? Why don't you ask the people that you work for? When he said last warning, I liked that her response, and this was the, the, it's what the you always say, moment, it's but there's always, always another. I, I really liked that. Yeah. And then. How many chances is too many chances? The, the mom stuff was honestly bizarre to me, but. You know, and it, to your theor- to your point and your theory about her working him and this whole thing uh, potentially having been a con, which I think again is completely, uh, if not if not 
probable in bounds at least, playing on that, like knowing that that is a liability, that charity in his heart. And with her specifically, he takes his gun apart. He puts it down, allowing her ultimately to knock him over and run away. Okay, well, last warning. It's not going to be the last warning. I'm going to be able to warm my way back and get that proximity that we need. He says the thing again later, like, right? Uh, you have one chance to save yourself. And I think you know that. And I think that's why you're here. And in my head, I'm like, no, I bet she has endless chances to save herself with you, my guy. Yeah. You know what this I mean? This was also, though, like, hearing you say that's made me think it's also a cross characters, a recurring beat in the episode because with the art, bo- the art slash bomb dealer, like, Fury has that whole, you get one oh, lie. One lie. But you don't get a second. So that's, like, a through line of the episode. You have one chance. You can fuck up once, but not again. And, like, you can hold that ground with a stranger who you're there to best anyway, but can you do it with your kid? Can you do it with someone who knows how to emotionally undermine you? You know, I mean, that is ultimately like some of the more successful as we talk about a lot. Marvel stories do have that connection between the quote unquote villain and the quote unquote hero, like the forces who are opposed. It's that Bucky Steve idea from Winter Soldier that we love and many of the other conversations we've had about Loki, et cetera. Like if there's that affection and that history, that connection, that character can hurt you in a way that a stranger just simply cannot. So I like the idea of Gaia remain. And I like the idea in that sense that she was tricking him because I think that's a, a richer text to play with. You're my mission. <laughs> Let's just watch Winter Soldier, uh, I mean, I would I would love to. Absolutely anytime. Okay, so let's talk about Maria Hill because Yeah. Before we go to the attack, we've got to have a drink. We've got to have a game of chess. This is the last episode. I mean, so Kobe Smulders gave an interview to David Canfield about Vanity Fair where she like, unless she's lying, which maybe she is, like they do that sometimes. Wouldn't be the first like, time. Yeah. She, you know, she's like, this is it. Right? I'm done. And I, I was so Never shocked. forget how many times Andrew Garfield said he wasn't in No Way Home. <laughs> I was <laughs> some some, some guy, person who works for DoorDash in Atlanta was like, but I saw you, dude. And he's like, <laughs> couldn't be me. Anyway. So she, yeah, Kobe Smolders might be lying. Um, I choose to believe that she would just no comment it rather than like give this elaborate interview to VF. But anyway. Um, let's say this is her last hurrah. Yeah. Um, it feels like this is probably the end for Maria Hill. So they give her a juicy scene before she goes, right? And I thought this was really, yeah. really good. And like, it makes me lament the fact that we haven't had more opportunity for Kobe Smulders to do this for to establish Maria Hill as someone even more significant to us um, in the franchise. She's just always been there by Nick Fury's side. And so just by dint of Years and years and years of her being, you know, snapped with him, being everywhere with him, et cetera, like being the one to know that he wasn't actually dead, all this sort of stuff. Like, um, we understand that bond, but as always, I would love a little bit more with with a character, especially when they're portrayed by someone who could do what what Kobe Smulders is capable of doing. Um, you already mentioned Fury goes in the bar, sees a a Russian dude who I I believe is actually graphic. I like there's I've seen different interpretations. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I believe oh, that you think that it's graphic there in the I do, moment. Not I that do you just think took a shell later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's graphic. I think the lady making out is graphic. I think the child is graphic. I think he's just sort of like it was all me. Or maybe it was all like my lieutenants, but I think it was all him. And I, I love I love that 
exchange. But anyway, they start playing um, a metaphor. I mean, uh, chess with each other. Iconic uh, spycraft scene. Uh, speaking of slow horses, great chess uh, uh, content and slow horses in season two. Yes. Um, but yeah, this idea of Nick Fury's crisis of faith, which we we talked about at the top of the pod or we heard about at the top of the pod. You're sure you're not talking about someone else in reply to him saying he owes it to, to Talos. Talos. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Who do you think this is about? I shouted out loud, Tony Stark built this show in a cave with the <laughs> box, box scraps. <laughs> I mean, I guess this could be about Carol. I think that read is valid, but this just felt like it was about Tony to me and and, and, and calling upon and invoking their history the history of, of forming the Avengers, how central Tony Stark and Iron Man were to that and to Fury's history. And because of Tony's death, this specific way that he thinks he failed, way that he thinks he let down somebody in his life and then the way that he just let down other people as a result of it, like Maria calling him out here on ghosting her, on abandoning her. I like to was think- like I, intense. I, 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 I would just like to go back and say, I would like to think it is equal parts Tony and Natasha, because justice for Natasha always, and Natasha worked more directly for Nick, right? But like, yes, both. I your Tony bias needs to be challenged sometimes. To, I love to, you. you. To quote you from mere moments ago, it's the MCU. I mean, one of these characters has gotten like a funeral and murals and every single frame that followed and one of them has not. So who is it more likely? I would think that would be lovely if it was about Natasha. Do I think that's what the show is calling upon? I don't know. He I works mean, so much us, closely with, with her. Anyway. I miss Nat dearly. I love I Nat. Would, I would love I mean, for I also someone love to say Nat's, Nat's name. So. <laughs> That'd be great. You just did. Good for you. Thanks. I'm better than other people. <laughs> Alright, so um, <laughs> so yeah, she's pissed that he that he Ghosted her. We've already talked about like where this belongs, phase four, phase five. Again, we're talking about snaps and Tony Stark and Natasha, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Maria says to him, You always told me there's no shame in walking away when the steps are uncertain. So check your footing. Otherwise, someone's going to get hurt. Like me, Kobe Smolders, who no longer gets to collect Marvel paychecks anymore. <laughs> God fucking damn it. Um, he's going to have to carry that now, too. As if he weren't already burdened, right? He's yes. going gonna to be thinking about those words. Yes. Uh, as he think about what he loses at the end of this episode. Yes. And, you know, to zip ahead to, for, for a second, we'll, we'll kind of go through the beats, but the moment when Hill dies, his response, the, the cry, the scream, like that is a level of emotion that we are unaccustomed to seeing from Nick Fury. Like he uh, is going to feel that. In a way that is lasting and unique and will will guide much of what is to come surely in, in the series. When he says, your mom would be very proud of you and she has tears in her eyes, that's why I think she's betraying him. Do you know what I mean? Because you can read it, of course, as emotional, like, oh my God, mom would be proud of me. But I read it as she's lying to him in this moment. You know what I mean? And it hurts her to hear your mom will be proud of you. Yeah, I, I I like that. I'm with you on that. I also think there's just something here that we know from her specifically as a lie, which like really heightens the suspicion when she says, he asks, because he's able to deduce, she says, I, I don't know, Gravik knows you'll be there, right? And he says, 
how. I don't know. We have so many operatives in the field, 100 at least. He's asking about if they're using fracking pods. Like the implication there is that someone close to him is a scroll, right? Is feeding information to Gravik. But when she says, I don't know, like we are we old enough to remember because it was just a few scenes prior <laughs> her walking behind those yeah. doors where victory rested and walking by fracking pot after fracking pot and then watching an initiation. She's the one that Pagan tasks with going to retrieve the bomb. Like she is in the inner circle, right? So we, we just know this is a lie. Now, might there be some operatives whose identity is not known to her? Sure. But she has a level of awareness that she is not revealing here. And so this was one of the real like, siren blaring he's being played and he doesn't realize moments for sure for sure when she says earlier when he says i'll protect you and she says you can't protect anyone i don't think that we saw anything in this episode that was enough of an evolution for her to have a change of heart you know what i mean like yeah i think the, the only thing would be that like your mother was killed while you were working for your kill for for her killers but then like she wouldn't interrogate that she wouldn't confront Gravik about that she wouldn't ask someone about that like that makes no you know well maybe she's gonna be be a double agent and try to remain in their good graces to learn from within what happened there that would I guess be possible I'm with you I think the more likely and interesting interpretation is that she's she's playing her dad who was ready to be duped as established many times in this episode Anything about the actual attack sequence, this stretch in the yard? I mean, I, I guess it's uh, in, in, on Unity Day out, out in the courtyard. I guess it's a, like broadly, we have this sequence, following your mark, infrared tracking, the, the marked bags, missing the handoff. Oh, they're decoys. Gravik showing up as the little girl into the I thought that was from cool. the bench into, yeah, the, into the guy from the bar, into Gravik. That part was great. The earlier scene with the, you know, the the the, the uh, Ross chase and then the Gaia chase, like, did those aspects of the spy thriller we are in an espionage pursuit story, like, excite you over the course of the episode? Did one of them work and grip you more than the others? I think mixed, but I think the revelation that all these little characters, I mean, we, we probably all flagged, like, the child with the ball moment that felt like really, I mean, they all do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We but, really linger on the woman on the bench. looking. Yeah. The one on the bench. She stares at him. Yeah. Spooky kid with the ball. But still to like, just watch him do it, to, to do it silently, just to show Nick, like it's that all was been me. was yeah. so and good. Again, whether, King, Kingsley Benadir, just like his face alone just works yeah. for me. So yeah. The, the, absolute like flex and dominance in that gaze like I have bested you in a way that you are only really now beginning to understand and I think that works whether or not like was it Gravik on the bench was it Gravik holding the ball was it Gravik at the bar or did he later assume those forms for this moment the fact that he is in plain view in rapid succession transforming from one person into another just to say I want you tell Cersei I want her to know it was me yeah you know like he, doing doing that flex whilst also intentionally distracting right Nick Fury in so that revelation yeah well, not just to get the hill but to like and then just like deadening the bombs like right the fuck in front of him you know, and to be like, you've been had nine different ways in this episode. 
and um and now I'm gonna take out your closest lieutenant. And yeah. like I and think he, Fury, he he knows the Fury sees him. He lets Fury see. Him. Yeah. Like he lets him see him. Yeah. Standing there, trying to like, yeah, want, detonating, uh, walking and away. Like, we don't know the relationship between Gravik and Fury, and I hope we get more information on that. But like the way that Taylor says, like he took it hard, mate. You know what I mean? Like they had an they had an existing relationship yes. that, that we we're going to learn more about. You know, sure. so um, and then and then the death of Marie Hill, and I just got to tell you, this is my least favorite part of this episode because. I'm not mad that Maria Hill is dead necessarily. Like she's again, not a character that we have spent that much time with. Um, The MCU does have a pretty nasty history of killing off women to motivate men. So this is just like another on a long line. We got a lot of emails about that and I agree with that. And, but I think, and this might, might sound callous of me, but like, the biggest sin is that it is just so inert. Like, if you're going to do that, if you're going to fridge someone, like, give me a moment that has me, you know, feeling it. And it's just sort of like in the chaos, it happens. And then he has to leave her and she's lying there. And we do see him, like, his face is giving us more than we usually see from Nick Fury. That's true. And perhaps we will spend dwell more in the fallout of this in the upcoming episodes that will make it feel that way to me. But the way it happens at the end of this episode is so abrupt and weird. And it really felt to me like not just the motivator aspect, but the whole like, we mean business. We, if Maria Hill can die in episode one, you won't know what's coming next. And I'm like, ah, I don't think that means what you think it means. You know, like with respect to this, with sincere respect to Kobe's smolders and people who, love Maria Hill and Maria Hill has a very long comics history in addition to the MCU history. Like this has never been a character I have personally invested in, in the MCU. I mean, I think like the, the, some of the highlights are like, he's fast. She's weird, which are like low lights, you know, I, this is not. So I think the, the bumping up against the MCU tendency to fridge female characters to motivate male protagonists is of course, of course, valid. Maria Hill dying. I was like, oh, I have never grown attached to Maria Hill because they never knew how to use her. It was a waste of a character across the entire history of the MCU. Or if they were going to do this, they I needed like three episodes to like really give her stuff to do in this season. And, you know, three, three more episodes. If you have three, like, because you could do that in Andor, you know, like, sorry. But like Nemec dies and I will never like, recover from it. Joe, you know what I mean? So I, like you can I, do it in three respo- episodes. My honest response to that is they couldn't do it in 15 years with Maria Hill. Or they well, didn't. But they weren't, so what but would they change making, three episodes? But I'm saying they weren't making it a priority. If you make it a priority yeah. in the season to like really give me who she is and like give me more of her relationship with, with Nick. Uh, it's still it's still not a move that I like. I still don't think it's the move, but it felt to me like they were trying to like just make this big move at the end yeah. of season mm-hmm. episode one. Yeah. And I'm a like splashy death. I don't think this is what you think it is. But it, to go back to that earlier statement from Samuel Jackson about this idea of like lone gunslinger Nick Fury stripping away Maria Hill is a part of that. But my question is like to get to lone gunslinger Nick Fury, what is going to happen to Talos? Talos. I don't, I never know what the vowel sound is on that name. Talos. It's like Thanos and Thanos. Um, Seems like it should be Talos. Talos. I know. Talos, Talos, which is Talos. 
It's a tough one. What's going to happen to Talos, right? Like, I can't imagine he makes it out of this series. Cannot imagine. So how, like, how quickly does it happen? And does his daughter do it? Et cetera, et cetera. Theory corner. Or is that what brings her back to the light? Right. If Gravit kills Gravit him. Gravit kills him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going with that. Yeah, then I like it. Because then Amelia Clark can remain in the MCU Great. as a, a hero. And we fridge, we fridge Taylor so that Amelia Clark can have motivation. <laughs> love, that. <laughs> love that. I love it. <laughs> I hope Taylor lives forever. I love Ben Mendelsohn. Anything else in the episode before we rapid fire hit our uh, our little I final section? I think we've here? given this episode way more Ample than it deserves. <laughs> <laughs> Easter eggs. We've talked about a ton of these already. Any favorites that you want to mention for the first time or uh, revisit here quickly? I don't know. I mean, there's plenty, but none that I feel like. Yeah. Oh, the shawarma truck. Sure. Shawarma truck. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, I think mine, I'm going to go with Nixon because we <laughs> really lingered on the Nixon and Reagan portraits in the White House, <laughs> the walk and talk. <laughs> well, and so Nixon, you know, the, the and, and, and Zerksu gets a very quick mention in this episode. And one of the forms that Zerksu takes in the comics is Nixon. So I like the, <laughs> I like that. Uh, Great stuff. Do you think that Sonia Sonia Falsworth is in fact a descendant of former Howling Commando James Montgomery Falsworth, as many are speculating? I would love that. I love JJ Field. So any 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 moment that I can think about lovely JJ Field and his dashing mustache, I'm yeah. happy to do so. Delightful. Wig watch with Joanna Robinson. It's hat watch this week and. Hot Watch is going to dovetail into VFX Watch because they did a thing here that they also do in Dial of Destiny, which is to use a hat to cover a, a face-changing VFX moment. So when Beto takes his hat off and pulls it down and is like he goes from human to scroll, there's a great moment in Dial of Destiny where Harrison Ford just like puts his fedora in front of someone's face in order to like do something. And I was like, oh, the old hat cover maneuver. So <laughs> Beto's hat. Okay, I'm excited for you to track the hat deployment across the season. I will. If this show had Netflix subtitles, this is one of our our other fun recurring bits that we like to to break out here. Flesh descending wetly from the Stranger Things days. If we got that sort of treatment on this episode, what would we have seen? Mine goes like this. The friendly face of Tim Canterbury. I mean, Dr. John Watson. I mean... Bilbo Baggins, I mean, Agent Everett <laughs> Ross, splats on the Moscow cobblestones like a juicy overripe honeydew melon. Is it weird that that made me hungry? <laughs> I love honeydew. It's, it's mid-afternoon snack time. Wow. I love honeydew. That was beautiful. Splats is a great one. We actually got a squelching in the actual subtitles for this episode, and so I am taking... That really felt like a... A Netflix-esque oh, yeah. usage. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I I felt I felt called upon to incorporate that. And so I am going with sad, cuckolded, painterly, bomb-making spy squelches back into scroll form, dig it unfaithful wife, inferior paintings, and bizarre chair fetish lingering in increasingly pointy years as he withers and dies. Masterful. R.I.P. to that guy. <laughs> Rest in pieces. <laughs> Joe, did you want to introduce any new segments before we end on Secret Scroll? 
You know what? Molly Rim and I would. And it goes a little something like this. <laughs> Character we'd most like to get in a fracking pod with. Tell me. <laughs> Thank you, Carlos. This is, uh, this is a remarkable prompt given that fracking pods are canonically established in the MCU as vessels to pull your memories uh, out of your head and allow. Okay. <laughs> God, great stuff. You know, it's wonderful. But I was thinking, even though it's spelled differently, of Battlestar. You know, frack and Battlestar. Yeah, what's a frack? frack. Yeah, yeah what's a frack? So let's go to the fuck pod. Who are you taking yeah. to the fuck pod? <laughs> um, Olivia Coleman in like red silk. I thought she looked extraordinary, oh, and I'm wow. taking her to the frack pod with me. Great, that's beautiful. Yeah. I'm going with Amelia uh, Clark's Gaia. Great, she could erase my mind anytime she wants. Hell yeah. That brings us. Two. Secret scroll. The bit that has lived on House of R in anticipation of this television program since, as you noted earlier, shocking to say, <laughs> shocking <laughs> to realize, the Eternals. We were debating how to keep Secret Scroll going now that we are, in fact, in the television show designed to reveal who the Secret Scrolls are. We've talked throughout the episode about our candidates. I mean, is there any quick summation you want to do of your top actual candidates here at the end, or you just want to you want to go old school with a classic House of R joke doozy? answer? Um, <laughs> top two candidates for me right now. Yeah. Real candidates. Mm-hmm. Brody, number one. Yes. Give me Sharon Carter. Give me Sharon Carter and let my okay. heart rest at long okay. last. My top two real ones are Rhodey and Val right now, I think. Though I'm, I'm on Sonya Watch as well. But like if Val is a scroll, does that mean like we're extending the scroll storyline into Thunderbolts? Or is that real Val coming back? Are real Val and real Ross in the prison camp together and they can like rekindle their romance? In a fracking pod as they, as they As they try to escape Finding the frack spark. Yeah. Wow. All right, my my old school House of yeah. R answer for this. The, spirit, the true spirit of and, the exercise. And what's hilarious about this episode, because we're like, okay, let's try to pick like a minor character or whatever. It is really hard to find a minor character who is not actually Gravik. So um, I went with one of Sonya's extraordinary thugs, but not both of them, just one of them. I considered just one, which one? <laughs> the one on the left. I, I consider and the, the one guy on the right she, is going to be devastated when he finds running. out. That'll be the emotional. Yeah, yeah that'll be the emotional real. wallop that we yeah. built to in, in yeah. invasion. I did consider the uh, the person who Sonia was talking to in the conversation that I think may have been mm. staged, but ultimately I have decided after careful consideration to go with the White House portrait curator. Oh, because I love there's it. a lot of time spent drawing our attention to these figures from our political past who were definitely at some point secret scrolls. And that feels like something that a scroll in that position would do. Let me just populate these halls with reminders of how you have failed and how we have won. Can I just say that one of my picks for secret scroll for House of, House of the Dragon was the actor who plays the boar? great stuff and then for obi-wan it was guard who gets baffled by the metal detector with tala what a journey we've been on together incredible (laughs) wow all right anything else joe about secret invasion episode one 
I'm delighted to be back on a Disney Plus show with you. And I am hopeful that this show turns out to be one that we love. And it could still happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe next week we'll be like, move over Andor. <laughs> get. <laughs> you will never hear us say that. Get, get, in, the, get in the pit, Andor. It's secret <laughs> invasion all the way. Oh, God. All right. Everybody gets one, but nobody gets two except you, because we are coming back next week with a Secret Invasion episode two deep dive. Thank you to our Skyplant enthusiasts, Carlos Chiraboga for producing this episode, Arjuna Ram Gopal for his additional production work on this episode, and Jomi Adeneron for his work on the social for this episode. Remember to head back into the Ringiverse this weekend for a Ross Theory video from Jessica. Pop back over next week for Final Fantasy video game talk on Monday. Secret Invasion episode two instant reaction on Thursday. Deep dive on, no, on Wednesday. <laughs> deep dive on Thursday. And a Dial of Destiny House of Midnight team up on Friday. Until then, remember, that chair belonged to Louis the 15th. It's priceless! It's priceless!